It's good to see you this morning. While I was preparing for this, I was struck with a thought that every one of us could have actually just stayed at home this morning. And just with a click of a button, we could have downloaded intelligent information, wonderful podcasts, the greatest orators of all time, right into our living room without even getting out of our pajamas. But instead, we're here. And what that says to me about our world is that the technological changes of the 1990s brought with it an incredible impact on our culture. If you're as old as I am, you remember life without the internet. I even remember life without TV. I'm from a family of six children. I remember when we first got a TV, our grandmother bought it for us, and we set it up in what was called the TV lounge. And we sat on TV couches, and we watched the test pattern, just waiting for something to happen. But what the technological changes brought and impacted our culture more than anything else is this incredible power of choice, the freedom of choice. With this freedom that it brought, it opened up all kinds of challenges because with just a click of the button, we can make powerful choices. In a world that seems to have no limits, responsibility is required to live well with the freedom that we are given. Freedom requires responsibility. And when our children were little, well, actually when they were teenagers and chomping at the bit like a horse running out of the gate, wanting more freedom, Robin and I used to say to them, if you want more freedom, you need to earn it with responsibility. It was our way of controlling their movement into adulthood. And while I would definitely do that if I still had a teenager in the home, I'm not 100% sure that it's biblical. Because instead, God, in his perfect love, and without any fear at all, gave us 100% freedom, completely free will to choose. And the question really is, what do we do with that freedom? Because to live well in freedom, to live well within the limits of what is good for us, we actually have a choice to make. And so this morning, I'm going to speak under a title, Do We Want to Be Grown-Ups? Do we really want, is there anyone out there that wants to be a grown-up and wants to apply these difficult concepts of maturity in order to create a life that is so much bigger than what we actually expect. The life that comes when we make healthy choices, when we limit ourselves and live in the life that God actually has planned for us because it is indeed a beautiful life. And so I'm going to speak about four things this morning. The first one is going to be unity, because adults know how to go after unity. The second one is going to be honesty, this incredible conflict sometimes that we feel that to be honest, we might not be unified. And then the third one is going to be purity, which was difficult for me to prepare. I way prefer speaking about things like grace than impurity. But to leave it out would not be good theology. And then the last one is because we mess up so much and sometimes we get all three of those wrong, I'm going to speak about the power of forgiveness and what that looks like. 
When our children were young and short, we had a wall in our house that we used to measure their growth on. They would come to us and ask Robin and I to mark the wall. Have any of you had that in your home? And then they would look at that mark and they wanted to see whether they had journeyed into adulthood. And if they came too often or were too overeager, if they came that same day, we couldn't really see that they had grown. But if they gave it some good time and used healthy time, ate a lot of the right food, the right nutrients, got some exercise, perhaps some sleep, then we would make a mark on the wall and we would see that they had grown. And what stood out to me about this phase, which I'm gonna use some of those concepts and apply today, is that there was this incredible innate thing in them, a desire for growth. They wanted, they were, they were surging towards adulthood and they were happy to make a mark. They wanted to see what that looked like. And perhaps what stands out to me more than anything else, that even if their mark did not move, if they did not grow at all, it would not disqualify them from being part of our family because they belonged and they were loved and their growth did not depend on anything else. It didn't matter to us. They were loved. But standing on the side of adulthood, I can honestly say that growing up is a beautiful thing. It's so much fun to spend time with children. And if you could give me a click of a button this morning and give me an opportunity to rewind the time, I would definitely click and go back. And do it all over again, without a doubt. I loved the stage of childhood, but to be on this stage of adulthood, to see the maturity and how they have grown and sit in our living room with a rent-paying 25-year-old <laughs> who takes responsibility for his life and who offers to help. There is something so satisfying about being around an adult. And for those of you that small with small children, there is hope. <laughs> And you don't need to get it all right because we certainly didn't. God's grace is sufficient even in parenting and they do eventually grow up. And I wonder sometimes, and this is not theology, this is just my thought, I wonder if sometimes our Heavenly Father looks at us and feels the same way. When He sees us getting along, when He sees us growing into adulthood, into maturity, when he sees us surging forward and taking responsibility for our lives, I know that I know that I know that his love never changes. We can't earn it by maturity. We can't grow his love anymore by us being grown-ups. But I wonder, I wonder if there's a sense of satisfaction that he feels the same way that I do when I look at our children, when I see them living in their inheritance that I hoped for them. When I see them understanding their sense of love and belonging and living in that, living in the capability, living what I imagined and prepared perhaps for them. In 1 Corinthians 13, which I find so interesting is in the love chapter, in the middle of Paul's instructions on what love looks like, he sandwiches this verse. When I was a child, I talked like a child 
I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Clearly, he's referring to the fact that there is something different about being a child and being an adult. And social scientists have examined a few things that I thought you might be interested to hear about this morning, some differences between being a child and being an adult. And if there are any children in the room, do not let this limit you. There are mature children that live in an adult stage of life. And if you're an adult this morning, <laughs> live in the maturity that God had planned for you. And let's make some marks on the wall this morning. Social scientists have marked a few differences. <laughs> One of the funniest differences between children and adults is their assessment of risks. Children assess risks based on whether they're gonna get caught. <laughs> adults assess risks according to the actual consequences of their behavior. You see, adults are able to have not only an egocentric view that children have, which is a view that sees the world only from their own perspective, but adults are able to look outside of that. Being married to an adult is incredibly fun because Robin is able to value what I value because he values me. And he gives up selfishness. He gives up all kinds of things in order to make me feel loved and to belong. And that is a sign of adulthood. Mature people are able to see things from someone else's perspective. They're able to value what someone else values. Adults are able to engage in abstract thinking, sophisticated thought, which opens up the possibility of alternative solutions. In fact, adults know that they are not always right. Children are, tend to be more black and white thinking, but adults know that there's, more, that there's a bigger perspective. There might be a different view. Maturity is goal-oriented. Mature adults are able to set a goal and move towards it, whereas childlike thought wants the immediate gratification, the five to five chocolate bar. <laughs> Although maybe that's a mark on the wall I still need to make. But this list is not complete. There are many other characteristics that are childlike and that adulthood are adult-like, but I've chosen these ones because I hope that they will help explain the unity, the honesty, the purity, and the forgiveness. It's interesting to me that modern-day culture sends us a slightly different message about adulthood. Here's one that I found. Adulthood is like looking both ways before you cross the street and then getting hit by an airplane. Do you ever feel like that? Here's another one. We have dogs, so this one was significant for me. Adulthood is like the vet, and we're all the dogs that were excited for the car ride until we realized where we were going. And then I love this one. I felt like this. Who do I speak to about quitting adulthood? And while this picture, these pictures depict that adulthood maybe should be resisted, and that adulthood is somewhat difficult, I tend to disagree. I think instead that as M. Scott Peck said, life is difficult. Life is hard. It throws us with knocks that we least expect. And yet, moving towards adulthood and establishing the maturity 
that is required actually makes life a whole lot more fun. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. And just like physical growth, where we can expect it, where it should be happening, I believe that emotional and spiritual growth is the same. God has prepared something for us to do. And we will be incredibly frustrated if we don't charge towards the mark. His love for us will not change. Our belonging will not change. We are part of the family and everyone counts and nothing will ever change that. But I think because God has got something for us, we will be internally frustrated when we choose to stay children in a life that he has for us of maturity and of adulthood. And so this morning my prayer is to ignite in each of us a desire for spiritual maturity, that none of us will leave this room without being willing, without being tempted, without being able to make a mark on the wall and to identify some things so that in five years' time we can look back like our children did and say, man, that mark moved because that's the goal. If there's anything I've learned in my 52 years of life, it's that if I don't move towards something intentionally, I will generally go backwards. I'm like a house without renovations, a garden that is uncultivated, a body uncared for. When I get squeezed, if I haven't worked towards something, what is in me that comes out is not pleasant. I can attest to this, I had builders at our home, we're in the seventh week of a two-week project. <laughs> and the fruits of the Spirit have gone out the room as the builders have entered. Things that I've said and thoughts that I've had that have come out of me. I look at the person and I think, who are you? Where did you come from? As I look at myself and I hear my own voice. And so I've been forced to make some marks this week to make sure that I'm moving to something to edit some things and to work on some heart issues that need to change, even when we have builders. <laughs> and so when we go to God and we pray that Psalm 139 prayer that says, Father, search my heart and try me and see if there's any wicked way within me, expose it to myself. Help me to see me the way you see me. And when I go to the people that love me so much and have my best interest at heart and ask them, how are you experiencing me? And what effect am I having on you? And then I'm able to use those things and make a mark on the wall and surge and charge towards adulthood, forcing myself to grow up, to be something that resembles Christ a little bit more than my old self. And so we're gonna have a look at Ephesians chapter four, at the first one, which is unity. As a prisoner of the Lord, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you, I urge you, ah, I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. We have a calling and there is a life to live that is worthy of it. So how are we gonna do this? Well, Paul gives us a beautiful answer here. Be completely humble and gentle. 
bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. How? Through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Are you getting the point? One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then if you jump down to verse 11, it says this. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Why? To equip his people for works of service. That's what they're for. So that the body of Christ may be built up until what? Until we all reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and that we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Because then we will no longer be infants, tossed to and fro, by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. I think it's interesting to note here that Paul says that he's a prisoner. Now, if you know the context of the scripture, he was under house arrest. So I don't know what kind of things you would have written if you were in jail, but I certainly would not have written Ephesians had I been in jail. Paul speaks about unity instead of accusations and blame. He speaks about forgiveness. I'm not sure I would have done that. He speaks about his position and his calling in Christ. I probably would have thought, God, where are you? Why have you left me in this prison? You see, Paul's writing this as a mature individual of the faith who has learned to be content in every circumstance. I have a beautiful friend whose husband is it stage four cancer. And we used to tease her and say she had childlike faith. I've watched her live this. She is a giant of the faith, a mature individual, because she knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that she is loved and she belongs and that she is God's favorite. And no matter what happens, no matter what happens in her day, nothing changes the lens that she looks at her life through. This is what we're talking about. This is the kind of faith that allows us to step into chapter four. You see, what we're doing here is we're coming into the middle of a letter. We're starting in chapter four, but Paul has built chapters one through three. He has told them how they belong, how they are loved, what their spiritual blessing is. And then he says, now think about this. You see, when we come into chapter four here, it's like, if we don't have chapters one through three, it's as if I'm asking my toddler to unload the finest china from the dishwasher. It's not gonna be a pretty picture. And there is a time for childhood and there's a time for sitting and there's a time to understand our belonging. And then there is a time for the meat and to do something and to prepare ourselves for works of service. And so we come in here at the works of service part. We come in here and we say, if we were gonna be a family, if we were gonna be mature individuals in the family, what does that look like? And the first thing that it looks like is unity. And notice that unity is from the bond of peace. It is not from the bond of agreement. If you've ever raised children, you'll know the bond of agreement is not something you can go after. We used to have family night on a Friday and the first thing we used to do, I had this beautiful idealistic picture of what it would look like. And then we would go to the DVD shop and choose one video with two children. 
And somehow the idealistic picture of what I was supposed to be doing by the textbook and having rituals and family time seemed to go out the window. And I wondered, why do we even do this? But it's amazing how children learn to give and to give each other space when you just keep doing the same thing and the same thing and the same thing and the same thing. And now we sit on the couch when our kids come home. And there's no conflict <laughs> anymore because things change and everybody eventually grows up. Some of the things that help unity is an understanding that different is not wrong. Look around, there's a lot of different. For goodness sake, I'm not everybody's cup of tea. But I might be a mighty fine cup of tea. And if you look around and you see, you will see different. And if your view is my view and I expect yours to be mine, if I expect you to parent the way I've parented, we're not gonna have unity. There are homeschool people here, there are government school people, there are private school people. There can still be unity, right? We can be different. And when we see the strength in each other and we call out the goal and we look for the green and we see the advantages of being different, we will move towards unity. The other thing that really helps unity is understanding where I end and you begin. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's something that's keeping me in this morning, which is called my skin. And inside my skin is where I end. This is me. And there are three things that I know that I'm responsible for. I'm responsible for my own feelings. I'm responsible for my own behavior. And I'm responsible for my own attitudes. Because a gift of the Spirit is self-control, not husband control. And a gift of, and a gift of the Spirit is self-control, not pastor control. And a gift of the Spirit is self-control, not child control. You see, because what happens is when we don't understand these concepts, we do what's called a seesaw theory of relationships. So let's just pretend that my husband is an incredibly strong disciplinarian in our home. And let's just pretend that I'm incredibly permissive, which is not true at all. So that's why we're pretending. But what happens if I feel responsible for him and I don't understand the difference is not wrong, I will try and make up for his way of parenting. And so what happens through the years is as I see him being firm and being really strong on the disciplinarian side, I will overcompensate by being completely submissive. And as we go towards the end of 25 years, I will literally have become a crazy person, more and more and more permissive, and he will be a crazy person, more and more and more disciplinarian and we will have crazy children. <laughs> because we didn't realize the difference is not wrong and there is strength in each of us and there is space for that. <clears throat> you see, on a good day, I'm in charge of me and this relates to raising children as well, moms and dads. When you have a child that seems irresponsible, generally what we do is we take responsibility for that person. And so a kid that's not doing homework, we will do the homework for them. Because of course we want to avoid the consequences for them. And so we don't allow this beautiful thing called life to take its toll. 
And instead what we do, life is supposed to have a natural effect on children. They're supposed to feel some pain when they don't take responsibility. But instead what we do as parents, because we love them so much, we protect them and we just catch them and we deliver the school kit when it's forgotten at home and we teach them everything. And late at night at one o'clock in the morning when they've forgotten to do a project, we go in and we do it for them. And what do we do? We remove life's consequences. Why? Because what happens in the theory of relationships is that as we do that, if I don't understand where I end and other people begin, and I take responsibility for their behavior, I create an irresponsible child. We do this with spouses, we do this with friends, we do this at work, we do this all over. Understanding where we end and others begin is a very important part of unity. 15 years ago, I damaged a relationship not understanding where I ended and somebody else began. A very close friend of mine started making choices for their lives. I disagreed, it was against my theology. And so I went into the situation armed with a moral high ground and with more opinion than love. And I proceeded to tell them the truth about themselves. As you can imagine, that confrontation was not very successful. And it took about three years to repair the damage because when we go in with opinion instead of love, we destroy unity. Because we forget that I'm responsible for me and they're responsible for themselves and the only job I have is to love people well. That's my job. That needs to be my attitude, that needs to be my responsibility and that needs to be my behavior towards you. A little while ago, I was in a similar situation and God gave me a second chance. And after crying for a week about the picture that I had of where somebody's life would take them, I was running one day and at the road in Glen Ashley. For those of you that haven't heard me speak before, I hear God when I run. I know it's weird, but that's the way it is. And I prayed and I prayed and I said, God, help me to see this the way you see it. I want to do it differently, but I still have strong views. And I heard this quiet, still voice. Do you want to be known by your love or by your opinion? Your job is to love. And that really has got to be the goal. Because when I act in love, I find that there is so much more unity around me. But sometimes unity comes into conflict with this thing called honesty. You know, sometimes I, when I'm taking the moral high ground, I have this feeling, but I need to be honest. Surely I'm not living an integrous life if I don't tell the truth. But what I realized about that moment 15 years ago is that I was telling the truth about them, the truth about the judgment that I had of their character, not the truth about me. And in Ephesians chapter four, it says, instead, Instead, 
speaking the truth in love. We will grow to become every respect of the mature body who is at the head, that is Christ. For him, the whole body joined together and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up. How are we gonna grow as a church body? We're gonna build ourselves up in love as each part does its work. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood, that is true, and speak truthfully to your brother. But let's speak about the truth about ourselves. Let's go to God like David did in Psalm 139 and say, God, show me my heart. Let me tell the truth about me, rather the truth about the flaws I see in your character. Because any statement that begins with, I don't mean to offend you, I'm just telling you the truth, is probably not the truth that Paul was speaking about. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and give the devil a foothold. Truth is never an excuse for judgment. Early on in Robin and my relationship, I learned this the hard way. We call it the dishwashing experience. He was sitting on the couch watching rugby and I was furiously washing the dishes. And with every dish I washed, my anger and my resentment built. And when I finally got to the couch to watch the rugby with him, which is something I love to do, I was huffing and puffing and like a child acting my emotions instead of speaking them out. And he asked that magical question, is there something wrong? <laughs> My thought was, what wasn't wrong? He was watching the rugby while there were dishes to be done. Surely that was irresponsible and childish. No, that was actually the truth about me. You see, he's not a mind reader, and he took me through a conversation very gently and quietly, as only he can do, and reminded me that he's not a mind reader, and I cannot expect for him to do that. It is my job to tell him the truth about me, and so last night when we came in and, and we had, I still had lots to do and I was rewriting this, I quietly said to him, babes, can you please feed the dogs? Which was so much easier than the huffing and puffing and building the resentment. The good news about that story is that we bought each other a dishwasher for our next anniversary. Learning to tell the truth about ourselves leads me to the next point, and that is the, the point that adults are able to live in purity. I didn't wanna do this piece, um, this little section, this was my most difficult one. I like to speak about grace, belonging, and love. But I was going through it. I had the sense that the reason we talk about grace and unconditional love is because of the problem with sin and impurity. The reason grace exists is because we struggle with some things. And so I've included it because I think to leave it out would be bad theology. And so in verse 17 it says, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every form of impurity, and they are full of greed. Can you see why I wanted to leave it out? 
But that, however, here's the good news, is not the way of life that you've learned, that you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Christ Jesus, because you were taught to put off your old self, the former way of life, which has been corrupted by deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitudes of your mind, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, adults know that it's not about the possibility of getting caught. Impurity and purity is about knowing the consequences of what we do. And adults are able to set forward a goal and work towards it and give up the short-term gratification for the long-term satisfaction. Grown-ups do not say, if he or she does not know about it, anything about it, it will not hurt anyone. Grown-ups are able to live without secrets. Grown-ups are able to evaluate their own motives and their own heart intents when no one's watching. And grown-ups are able to tell themselves the truth. Adults know that life is not to be viewed through these egocentric lenses where it's only about me. Adults know that we can't have everything because we've given away to greed. Purity has no hardness of heart. Purity is sensitive to the things of God. Purity does not make its own rules. It does not try to be God. Purity instead desires the things of God and his holiness. Purity does not limit our lives. It does not limit our fun. Purity expands your life into a beautiful place And if I look back on my life and I look at the impure times when I lived in impurity with a hardness of heart, I can honestly say that those were my worst times. So limiting, so small. Impurity is not worth it. And some people call it guilt, some people call it shame. For me, it is this picture that there's an old self and there's a new self. And when we put the new self on, it is a beautiful, beautiful fit and it feels amazing. But when we live in the old self, it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't fit. It doesn't look good because it's not what God has for us. But because this exists, we're going to speak about forgiveness. And the problem with forgiveness, it is a great idea until you have someone to forgive. It's so easy to talk about on a Sunday morning, so difficult to live on Monday. Paul says it like this, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful, only what is helpful, this is what we call editing in marriage relationships, only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit for whom you were sealed from the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, of all anger, of all rage, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as Christ forgave you. I've heard this taught that we should forgive others because it's good for us. Yeah, that might be true, but that's not why we forgive. We forgive others because it is an altruistic gift. Nobody deserves it. We don't, it's not a selfish act. 
I don't forgive you for my sake. I forgive you because I have been forgiven. Because I'm humble and I'm empathetic and I understand my sin. I know that I make mistakes. And I'm grateful for God's forgiveness. And that is why, that's how we learn to forgive others. I heard a talk by a man called Everett Worthington, absolutely brilliant man. He wrote a book called Hope Focus Counseling and I was fortunate enough to sit under his teaching and hear him explain his theory of forgiveness that he built. And when you hear his story, you understand that he didn't just build a theory, he lived something. His mother was killed in a brutal murder by a man that I think was under the influence of drugs. And his journey to forgive was absolutely phenomenal. And he talks about two types of forgiveness, the decisional forgiveness and the emotional forgiveness. And you see, as Christians, we all know that forgiveness is a good idea. We know that God tells us to forgive. We can make a decision to forgive. If you've lived in the faith for any long and lived as a Christian, you will probably forgive just second nature almost. You decide to forgive all the time. But he speaks about something called emotional forgiveness, which is perhaps a different level of forgiveness and takes a little bit longer. He explains that emotional forgiveness is when we are able to replace the feelings of anger, malice, and slander that Paul speaks about with empathy, with love, with kindness, and that we don't just do it over here, but we feel it inside us. And that needs to be a goal, because otherwise we pretend that we've forgiven, but we don't feel forgiveness. And when that thing rises up again, we remind a person of what they've done, of how they wronged us. We want retribution, we want to balance the scale, we want to make it right. But when we approach forgiveness from an altruistic act, and we go with it with a place of understanding, and sometimes even that takes acknowledging our part in it, which is really tough when we rather want to blame. But that's what emotional forgiveness looks like. So you are not a definition of your worst moments, and neither am I, and I am not a definition of my best moments, and neither are you, but we are actually responsible for our moments. And growing into adulthood says, I will take responsibility for what goes on inside of me, because on a good day, I am in charge of me. So I want you to make a mark this morning in a courageous act. Think about how much are you going after unity? That thing that you choose to do next, is that with the goal of getting closer to someone? If you have a conversation or a confrontation, is your goal to connect? Is your goal to show love and belonging? Or is your goal, like mine was 15 years ago, to take the moral high ground and give your opinion? And then secondly, how honest are you? Not with others about them, but with yourself about you. What does your life look like if you were gonna print out your moments on the screen? How would that look? If I was gonna show you what my passage experience last week looked like with a builder, would I be proud? <laughs> and then purity. If you're struggling with impurity, tell some friends, 
get some help. Get them to hold your arms up. Because there's something about impurity is when we take it out of the cupboard and it gets exposed to the light, the mold stops growing. And then forgiving. When I spoke about forgiveness, who came to mind? Who do you need to give a gift of forgiveness to? Not because it's good for you, but because you are imperfect. And we learn to forgive the way God forgave us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take this moment. Lord, I pray for a church that in five years' time, when we look back and we make a mark, we will be different. I pray that the, that the community will say about us, look at the unity. Yo, they disagree, but oh, my hat, they are so unified. Lord, I pray that that would be a mark of our culture, and I pray that it would be a mark of every single family here, that we would learn how to disagree and stay united. And Lord, I pray that you would ignite something in us for forgiveness. Apply your grace, Father. Bring your grace into the room so that when we leave here, we're able to look at that person that has so desperately hurt us and apply the same love that you have given to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.